This is Look West, a podcast from California's Assembly Democrats. Please be advised this episode discusses gun violence and gun deaths. Parkland, Isla Vista, Newtown, San Bernardino, Thousand Oaks. It seems like every day in the United States, another mass shooting comes and goes, and people vow that this must never happen again. Mundane activities take on an ominous tone as people are gunned down in shopping malls, movie theaters, nightclubs, schools, houses of worship. And the attention these shootings get sometimes distract us from the much more common personal gun violence of everyday shootings that plague so many of our communities. I'm Talitha DeMessa. And I'm Andy Domic, and you're listening to Look West. Suicides, domestic violence, robberies, accidental deaths. Many of these are preventable. All are tragic. In a bit, we'll hear from Assemblymember Buffy Wicks and her husband, Peter Ambler, of the gun violence prevention group Giffords who have a love story that was born of their work to keep people safe. As the two of us were talking about how to tell this story, we were overheard by colleagues who shared with us their own experiences with guns and gun violence. It became clear how common this type of violence really is. Maybe it's happened to someone you know. Bella and John have graciously agreed to share their stories here. My name's Bella Romero. I work with the Democratic Office of Communication and Outreach here in Sacramento, California. Um, I am from Davis, California, born in Modesto, California, so Northern California, born and raised. Um, And I'm here with John Edmond. Thank you, Bella. My name is John Edmond. I, too, work in the Democratic Office of Communications and Outreach. I am born and raised uh, Oakland, California, um, where I spent most of my childhood. Bella grew up around guns, but she didn't think much about them until she went to college. At UC Santa Barbara, she lived in Isla Vista, where on Memorial Day 2014, a gunman shot and killed six people and injured 14 more in one of the worst mass shootings in California history. We didn't know where the shooter was. There were a lot of reports that saying like he's a a block away from us, but there's only like five streets and they're three streets long. So which part of the street is he on and where is he going? And so there was a lot of confusion in that moment. Like, where is he? Are we in the line of fire? Um, Luckily, we were like one block. Like, he turned right instead of turning left to us. The next morning walking around, it was surreal. It, I have never heard Isla Vista that quiet. No one was there. I mean, people went home just no one wanted to talk. No one could do anything but just kind of cry and stand around and look at what happened and like disbelief. I mean, I left UCSB that weekend. I got out of Dodge. I went back home to Davis. It was a good question of whether or not I was going to come back. Um, You know, you just don't feel safe after that. And um, and ultimately transferred away. I think it was really hard to be there every day and be reminded that you're not safe. The emotions are still there. I don't know that I ever really like truly dealt with it. And I, I, I think I'm still really angry about it. And whenever I hear another mass shooting, it's just more anger. Like I don't, I can't cry anymore for it. I mean, I just did, but I can't cry at the news anymore. I just, 
I cried enough for myself and the friends who were affected by the gun violence in Santa Barbara that now I just get angry that nothing is happening quick enough at a national level. And I'm glad California is making a lot of steps, but you know, we're not the biggest problem, right? It's a national, it's an international issue. John also grew up around guns. As a child, gun violence was common. All too often, he and his family had to cope with the sound of gunfire in his own neighborhood. I was supposed to go, it was a Saturday, I was supposed to go to a friend's house, um, meet two of my friends, good friends. You know, mom said, no, you didn't do your chores. You can't go. I'm like, no, but I want, really want to go. And <laughs> uh, yeah, I ended up not going, yeah. right? Long story short, I got a call that night where um, one of the friends that was there, he ended up dying. Wow. Because an older cousin of another friend brought a gun. Mm-hmm. So there were somebody in the room showing somebody else the gun, having it in their hands, oh. looking at it. Yeah. Um, my other friend is sitting down on the couch while they're standing up. Yeah. And the gun goes off. And those two jump that's looking at the gun. Yeah. But the gentleman sitting down on the couch stands up gas for air and passes and falls down. Everybody mm-hmm. runs. And he ended up dying. I went to school with him. I went to elementary school with him. I never seen him again. As I got older, you know, more and more people, um, there was always funerals. There was shirts yeah. everywhere. There were people's shirts and fundraisers. Just, you know, the mm-hmm. funeral home stayed busy uh, as I grew yeah. up. Um, and then, you know, what really kind of resonated with me the most was it was as I got older I was old enough to stay out a little bit later um, and just happened to be out just coming back to the neighborhood I'm, I'm with one of my one of my good friends we go on our way back we see a gentleman standing outside so we get out and it's just two blocks from my house we get out we talk to him we stand there for about 15 minutes it's time to go we go we leave we're at his house Soon as we closed the door, it was less than four minutes. Yeah. It sounded like uh, Afghanistan on, on the roughest night. It was just a rat ta da and it was too close. So we get back in the car, we go back right where we just came from, and he's laid out on the ground, the, the gentleman we were just talking to, with bullet holes just riddled through his body. He was just laying there, and it was it was an experience just to see like a a dead body with so many holes in it, and and after hearing it, after just talking to him, after seeing him five minutes ago, it's like I never could talk to him again. I'll never see him again. He's dead, and that just really resonated through my whole life. It's like that is really implanted in my brain sometimes yeah. in my dreams, and and to this day, that was twenty plus years ago. Yeah. And I still see it like it was yesterday. That really motivated me to want to get out even more. I want yeah. to see something different. I want to. I want to experience a different life. I want. Uh, I want to do something. I want to. I want to do something for myself. I want to be better. I want to yeah. not do this at 25. Um, yeah. You know, I, I got to do something better. You know, that that wanted yeah. me to get out. So what I did was I applied to colleges. I started applying to colleges. I had to be in the 11th grade start applying to colleges, um, really start working on my GPA, really got it up there, and I yeah. got accepted to Tuskegee University. Mm-hmm. And you know, you would think things would be different. Um, but I, I went all the way to Tuskegee University, 
to see my second dead body, you know. Um, but wow. in, outside the dorm room, it was a shooting in the middle of broad day, and you could see the dude shooting and running, and it was like, oh, he laying there. Oh, that's oh, it's over for him. What bothers me is the separation of the two issues. Mm. The bottom line is gun violence, no matter yeah. if it's a mass shooting or Absolutely. on a street corner near you. It doesn't really matter what situation it's in. It's, it's all the same underlying issue, uh, gun violence. Many people said that if the United States couldn't take action on gun violence in the wake of the Sandy Hook massacre of 20 children and the adults who were trying to protect them, we never would. And for a while, that seemed true. But not in California. Our elected officials continue to work to reduce gun deaths, and increasingly, people are looking to California to lead the way nationwide, because thoughts and prayers are just not enough. Hi everyone, this is Buffy Wicks, Assembly Member from Assembly District 15 in the East Bay, representing Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond area. And I'm sitting here, uh, part of the Look West podcast, talking to my husband, Peter Ambler, who runs Giffords. It's a national organization devoted to preventing gun violence. And we're in my district office having a conversation about his work and my work and what it means to us. Our work. Our work, exactly. Um, hi, honey. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Um, why don't you tell us why you do this work, how you got involved in the gun violence prevention movement? Well, um, it's a long story, I guess, but, um, I'm originally from El Paso, Texas, and eventually ended up going to college in Washington, D.C., and, um, getting sucked into the black hole of politics, spent many, many years working in Congress, and in 2010, I actually lost my job. The congressman, the, the congressman I, that I worked for, uh, lost re-election in the um, you know, Republican wave of 2010, and I was fortunate enough um, to be rehired um, for one of the few jobs that was open at that time by an up-and-coming young congresswoman from Arizona named Gabrielle Giffords. I joined her office on January 3rd of 2011, um, and five days later, she was shot in the head at a uh, constituent event at a uh, supermarket in Tucson, Arizona. What was that moment like? Do you remember when you got the news or found out what had happened? Yeah, it was a Saturday morning. Um, I was you know, sitting at home uh, watching the news and, um, you know, little you know, driblets of news started flowing in. Um, you know, friends at the White House actually uh, told me that, um, told me first that they were getting, like, reports of something that had happened in Tucson and started appearing on social media. And then, of course, um, before you know it, it's, uh, you know, breaking live. I also received a phone call from, you know, somebody um, who had spoken with somebody who was there. And, you know, it's just, it's, um, it's, it's unbelievable, right, to, to think that you're going to get a phone call on a Saturday morning, minding your own business, um, to, to tell you that, you know, the congresswoman that you work for has been shot in the head and multiple fatalities. Um, and obviously, at first, there was a lot of confusion. Um, I, you know, got in my car, headed from my apartment into work on Capitol Hill. And while I was driving in, NPR broke the erroneous news that Gabby had been killed. 
Um, so there is, you know, in a situation like that, in general, there's always a lot of confusion. Um, we didn't know, you know, who was alive, who was dead, who had been shot, who hadn't been shot. Um, and I remember uh, walking into me, <laughs> walking into my office, and you know, these are people. I was the legislative director. These are people I had just started managing, and you know folks who had you know dedicated their lives and careers for you know years before I had shown up um, to Gabby and her political career and her agenda in Congress you know slumped into corners um, it was absolutely devastating it just made me cry <laughs> <laughs> um, okay uh, sorry <laughs> when he gets emotional I get emotional <laughs> and I also get emotional when he doesn't get emotional uh, <laughs> So how, um, once that happened, I know that you were there in the office helping kind of manage the office in the process for her recovery. Um, and then she ultimately decided to resign, right? Um, and then what happened? How did sort of Giffords come about? Well, um, it wasn't as if, you know, G Gabby gets shot on a Saturday and Monday. Um, we're thinking about how to take on the NRA and address gun violence, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, like I said, there were, you know, there was triage happening, you know, mm -hmm. in Gabby's hospital room and then um, less literally, you know, in our congressional office. Um, but by the time, um, you know, 2012 rolled around, you know, she and her husband, Mark Kelly, um, had moved back to Tucson, Arizona, um, and were beginning to sort of um, think about their new life. You know, Mark had uh, retired from NASA and the Navy, and um, were um, contemplating their next phase of public service because fundamentally what um, the two of them are about and I think what has drawn them together is a, a shared commitment to public service. And you know, what happened over the course of 2012 was um, the, an opportunity for Gabby and Mark and for others in their orbit like myself to really take stock of um, the gun violence epidemic in, in this country. And, you know, that year you had the shooting at the Oak Creek uh, Sikh Temple in Wisconsin. You had the Aurora shooting um, in Colorado at the movie theater. Um, and then, of course, um, that kind of like year of violence culminated in uh, perhaps the most infamous um, act of gun violence this country has known um, at, you know, Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. And I remember being at work at the Department of Energy in Washington, D.C. when that happened. Um, um, and then I remember sort of like literally where I was standing when I sort of got the body count, right? It wasn't, you know, just another horrific mass shooting or school shooting. It was... Um, something that was ultimately going to catalyze a national movement and um, got on the phone with Gabby Mark that day. Um, Gabby's in Tucson. Mark was actually in China, um, but we managed to sort of stitch ourselves together. And um, Gabby kept saying that, you know, she'd had enough. Um, and weeks later, we had launched the organization, which is now Giffords, um, an effort to, um, you know, level the playing field with the gun lobby, um, to elevate uh, gun safety as a voting issue, and ultimately to pass meaningful, comprehensive legislation uh, to reduce the number of shootings and save lives from gun violence. 
And of course, it's <laughs> how I ultimately met you. Yes. <laughs> do, do you remember how we met? I remember very well how we met. How did we meet? Um, we met in the vice president's office. And I remember it was, well, actually, the first time we met, you don't remember. Um, I was doing work with the Joyce Foundation. And you and your colleague, Pia, had were this was like January. This was like a month after you guys set up Giffords. So you were in the midst of setting up Giffords. And we met in a coffee shop in D.C., and we were talking about sort of different funding opportunities. Um, and then that started, we started doing these weekly meetings in the vice president's office. And this was when the Mansion Toomey background checks bill was being considered in the Senate. Um, and there was a handful of advocates and others who were trying to, to push for the bill. And I remember those meetings very vividly because you were the smartest person in the room. And you always had like your finger on the pulse of what was happening uh, on the Hill. Um, and there were other smart people there, too, but no one else really knew what they were talking about. Um, and it, it's, it's perhaps that you let a different kind of attraction color your analysis no, of my uh, intelligence. You, no, you you uh, you knew what was going on. And I just remember thinking, oh, my God, he's so smart. Um, and obviously clearly passionate about the issue and had such a personal connection to it. And so we spent the next six months trying to get that bill passed in these weekly meetings in the vice president's office, um, some of which included the vice president. Um, one notorious meeting that included the vice president after the first night that we went and had a couple drinks. And I remember walking in and, uh, with a little bit of a hangover. <laughs> in blue jeans. In blue jeans, meeting the vice president. Um, yeah, that's how we met. And so we didn't pass the Mansion Toomey Universal Background Checks bill, unfortunately, but we did meet and we fell in love and got married and had a baby, so something good came of it, right? Yeah, I don't think, actually, the um, our marriage is the only good thing that <laughs> um, came out of that background checks bill. Um, it was, you know, it was actually a big moment, although it got filibustered. It received the support of 55 senators. Well, and Republicans specifically. Democrats and Republicans, yeah. um, which is a l number much larger um, than we would have gotten just a couple months before that. Um, but it also, you know, served to really um, demonstrate to the American people the, you know, grip that the gun lobby ha had on Congress and on our politics. And um, I remember somebody, you know, telling me after Manchin Toomey uh, was filibustered, you know, I was angry. Yeah. Um, but um, they said that it, this probably turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to us because it laid bare – um, the imaginations of our politics um, and um, inspired people to um, get involved and get angry and um, create change. Well, and I remember the, the, the day of the filibuster was, at, at that time at least, and for a long time, the, our number one fundraising day. Well, and I, I talk about this, and you and I have talked about this before, where people say often this issue – God, it's so hopeless. Like, it's so hard to make change. Why can't we fix this problem? But then when you actually think about what has transpired in the last, like, 10 years or so, and you and I have talked about this, right? Like, I was in the White House in 2009. Um, you were in the Hill, right? And not once did we talk about any gun violence prevention measures. Yeah, we, never, yeah. we never. We hid from it in the White House. We hid from it on the Hill. Democrats were scared of their own shadow. And now, look, today, we have Democrats running on this issue. In 2009 and 2010... Uh, you had Barack Obama in the White House, a filibuster-proof, 60-vote Democratic majority in the Senate, Nancy Pelosi's first speakership. Um, and not only didn't, you know, as Democrats, we um, 
you know, pass gun safety legislation. We didn't even try. We didn't even try. Um, yeah. And, you know, the thing that happened, um, you know, on January 3rd, five days before Gabby got shot, was not just me starting in her office. It was Paul Ryan taking over the gavel as Speaker of the House of Representatives. Right. And that, um, you know, really uh, closed, uh, closed the door and, you know, um, prevented meaningful action by the House of Representatives. Um, that we could have seen in the aftermath of Gabby being shot. Well, and, and I hear you on the phone, like when we're at our house or whatever, and you have, you know, congressional candidates calling you from purple states, like wanting Gabby's endorsement, red wanting states. Gifford's endorsement, red states wanting Gifford's endorsement. And that's such a testament, I think, to where the country has moved on this issue and the fact that people are really sick of it. And I think politically, there's been such a sea change on it. And as you've noted, there's been what, 200 and 300 something, you know, things passed at the state level, mm-hmm. legislation passed at the state level or executive orders. I don't know if it's executive orders or legislation, yeah. but over 300 pieces of legislation passed at the state level in 45 different states over the past um, several years. That's huge. And I think you actually have passed one of those bills. <laughs> I have, in fact. Um, um, so what, what has it meant to you, you know, not just sort of have the experience that we had together in 2013 advocating for stronger gun laws, but to actually introduce and pass legislation here, here in California as a new assemblywoman? Well, um, you know, this is just finished my first year um, as an elected official uh, in the California State Assembly and was really honored to have carried the budget ask and accompanying legislation to support the CalVIP program and to codify it into law. Basically, what CalVIP is, is the California Violence um, Intervention and Prevention Program, where we fund uh, community-based organizations who are doing really frontline work, working in communities across the state, really focused on communities where there's persistent and consistent gun violence, which tend to be more disproportionately communities of color in urban settings. Um, One of the things that has been, I think, a little, I don't know, challenging or the realities of the gun violence prevention sort of space and more broadly the media is what often gets most attention understandably is these big mass shootings and they are horrific but the realities of the matter there are many communities across our state which tend to be black and brown who are living in gun violence persistently every single day and we're not investing in those communities Um, and that's where I think CalVIP is important because it invests directly in these community-based organizations there's an organization here in Oakland called Youth Alive and they work with um, folks who are um, who've recently been shot, um, their family members and friends, to try to stop that cycle of violence. You know, I, I did a tour and was talking to them, and um, they're often the first phone call at the hospital. The hospital calls Youth Alive when there's been a shooting. They come, they sit with the family, they sit with the friends, and they try to stop the retaliatory shooting so that there's not this cycle of violence. Um, these programs have been deemed successful. We've seen a reduction of gun violence in, in my district, in Richmond, by 66%, and in Oakland by 52%. Um, previous to my budget ask, we were doing about $9 million a year in California. That's what we call in Sacramento budget dust. It's not a real investment, in my opinion. Uh, we were able to get that up to $30 million. Um, just for perspective, New York City alone does $39 million, So we need to keep asking for more money, which Gavin Newsom, if you're listening, we're coming for, for this money <laughs> again. Um, but these resources we know are really effective at really getting into that kind of those communities that are having sort of systematic 
um, pervasive gun violence in their communities. And to have carried that budget ask and carrying the legislation to codify these programs into law, to work with Gabby um, and all the organizations that were involved. You know, we also started um, I, with when I brought Gabby to Sacramento and introduced her on the floor of the assembly. Um, and Gabby was there to help launch our gun violence prevention working group of legislators who are in Sacramento who care about this issue. And it's a pretty um, broad list of folks who who care about the issue. And I think the reason why a lot of us care about the issue is because we see it every single day in our communities. You know, um, it's a pervasive problem. Now, California is doing better than most states. And we know over the last, you know, two and a half, three decades or so, as we've put forth more progressive gun safety laws, we've seen a reduction in gun violence, but it still exists. I mean, I think one of the challenges that we have here is that a lot of our guns come from Nevada. And that's why ultimately, you know, federal legislation is critical so that we can stop, you know, our our states are porous. We can't stop everything from coming in. But, you know, we still have some real challenges ahead. I know, um, there's this whole idea around ghost guns, and I was talking with one of your colleagues today, Peter, um, a, and he had mentioned that uh, a third of um, guns confiscated now, um, crimes, are ghost guns. Um, these are guns that are made, kind of homemade guns, effectively, and there's virtually no regulation around them. Assemblymember Mike Gibson um, passed a bill to help provide more regulation around those, but there's still these real big challenges that we have here. Yeah. So since you have a kind of national perspective on the issue, where do you think California kind of stands vis-a-vis the rest of the country? Uh, Well, we have certainly done better than um, other states in terms of passing stronger gun laws. You you have and have had for a while a legislature that's committed to taking on the gun lobby and um, looking at the threat from gun violence um, as it manifests itself in you know, the, the communities that legislators represent and passing legislation to actually you know, address, um, address the epidemic of gun violence. And um, we've put in place over a number of years um, you know, enough laws um, that work, right, um, and have uh, you know, um, helped make sure that you know, California relative to you know, other states across the country has a lower rate of gun violence um, than its sort of peer states and also than, the, than, than, it, than it once had. You know, this is an increasingly safer state, and the, one of the reasons for that is the investment that, you know, um, that, that the legislature has made in stronger gun laws, um, not to mention investments in community violence intervention um, you know, along the lines of what you described in, in, in Oakland, which can you know, produce rapid declines in homicides and shootings in a relatively short period of time. That's not to say that there's not more that we can do here in California, because now you have Gavin Newsom, who not only ran on guns and won on guns is prioritizing gun safety as governor. You know, he spent 2016 running around California investing in the passage of a comprehensive uh, ballot initiative to put background checks on a- ammunition um, and undertake other measures to um, keep us safer. He which is... Uh, which we both worked on together, Which too. we both worked on <laughs> together. The, the Giffords Law Center is the sponsor of that, um, ba- of that ballot initiative. Um, so I, I think in a lot of ways it's a new day in California. And um, and I have um, I'm really excited about what you and your colleagues in Sacramento are going to be able to achieve, and um, because you know I think we have twin goals here in, in California. One, 
you know, we need to put in place a set of laws that's going to keep, you know, our family and our neighbors and residents across the state as safe as they can possibly be. But we also need to demonstrate to the rest of the country what, um, you know, you know, bold policymaking on gun safety actually produces. And I think, you know, Californians like to think that they first in the nation, that they lead the nation. And I think it's incumbent upon the legislature to make sure that that's what we're doing on guns. Um, because if we can't do it here in California, um, the rest of the United States is going to be a lot more skeptical. Yeah. Um, so I want to switch gears a little bit. So we have a three-year-old little girl named Jojo uh, who's hysterical. Uh, and so you've been doing this work prior to having a kid and now as a parent. How has the work shifted for you as someone who's now a parent? That's an interesting question um, because I, I have a real answer to this, and it's, and it's not something that I – really expected to happen but um you know th- this work regardless of who you are takes on an emotional resonance and has an emotional toll um you know it's hard to go through and respond to you know these shootings without you know thinking back on the you know days after the tucson shooting um but you know i i think i tend to compartmentalize and you know be able to focus on, you know, the work in front of me, right? Um, and, you know, I, I, I just love winning. You know, I want to beat the NRA. <laughs> I want to win this election, pass that bill, um, and, and, and I hate losing. That's what sort of drives me each and every day. But, you know, um, I've been – it's been about well, a little over um, nine years since Gabby got shot. Um, and it's been a little over seven years since we launched – Giffords, the organization, um, but it's just the past three years um, that I've been a parent, and um, the way that I react to you know gun violence in the news, um, the extent to which I'm like emotionally wrought by my work um, is you know much greater as, as, as a parent, um, and and I think that's one of the things that's really driving the the, the, the shift in our politics and the progress that we're making um and specifically in the aftermath of you know the parkland shooting um and other school shootings across the country and all the other moments when you know children have lost their lives when you have kids um standing up and pointing their fingers at the adults and saying you know you failed us you failed to keep us safe that is such a profound implication of our. Um, uh, sorry, it's a, that's such a profound indictment of our politics, um, and it's you know a profound moral failure on on, on our part, um, demonstrated through our politics. You know, we as a society um, have just some very core basic responsibilities. One of those is to protect people who can't protect themselves. That's one of the first things that a country, a society, a community does. Um, and, you know, somehow we have decided that through our politics that it's acceptable um, for children to die um, because, you know, you know, politicians like aren't strong enough to take on an $11 billion, you know, gun lobby, aren't um, strong enough to take on the NRA. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, parents, um, you know, you can't look into your kid's eyes and lie, right? Um, and I don't think, you know, the vast majority of adults, the grown-ups, can look down at their kids and say that they're doing everything that they can 
to keep them safe, um, especially when um, they get text messages, you know, from one of their kids saying, you know, we're doing another one of those drills, you know, piling, piling into the supply closet. I love you. You know, hoping, <laughs> hoping that it's a drill. Um, and it's, you know, ex- extremely traumatic for, you know, the kids and the parents alike. Um, and that's something, you know, now as a parent, I feel each and every day in my work. Mm-hmm. So have, have you ever thought about, you know, how we would talk to our daughter about shootings? Like if she asked us, you know, why do I have to do this drill? What do you say? The adults failed you. I don't know what to say. I mean, um, I think you have to, you want to make sure they're safe, right? And if that means doing these drills for now, fine. But I think that's why for me with my work every day in Sacramento, I want to do everything I can in my power to not be one of these elected officials who did nothing, you know, while our kids are dying in their schools. Um, And it does hit home when you're a parent. I mean, I remember watching um, President Obama speak about Newtown. And I don't think I appreciated it as much at the time that he was so emotive and emotional and teary-eyed. I mean, obviously, it was a heavy moment, right? But now I understand as a parent, you know, um, him speaking as a parent, um, when you see these profound losses of these, like in Newtown, these five- and six-year-olds, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. Something that's also important to recognize, um, especially on an issue, you know, that's um, sort of freights such pathos and sadness and, you know, devastation and despair that, you know, we also need to be really hopeful. Yep. Um, because the message of our opposition, the message of the NRA and the gun lobby and um, politicians that have taken their money and aligned um, themselves with them is that there is no hope. That, you know, gun violence is, you know, akin to a natural disaster. It's a hurricane or earthquake right, or a tornado. It it's, yes, yeah. it's a neck. It's something beyond our ability to, um, you know, control. Right. Which there's, is, just, there's just some crazy people in the world and that just happens. Yeah. Which yeah. is why they spend their time blaming, you know, right. mental, mental illness, health. Yeah. Um, poverty, bad parenting, video games. Uh, social media, you yeah. know, any number of things other than, you know, easy access to firearms. Right. Um, but that argument fails like the most basic and obvious test, which is, you know, we as a country um, are the only um, country of its kind that, you know, has hundreds of millions of guns and, you know, very um, lax gun laws. In fact, if you look at us in terms of our peer group, um, among countries, we have a uh, you know gun violence rate that's uh, 25 times what um, comparable countries have. Right. And you know we're not the only country in the world um, where kids play video games. Right. Or violent video right. Games. Look at Japan. They have yeah. people with mental health challenges. They have video games. They have social media. And yet, what's their gun violence rate? It's almost zero. Yeah. Um, so this is we know this is a solvable problem. And I think everybody listening to this podcast, every, you know, California or American voter um, should feel, you know, really empowered because, you know, um, not only do they have the opportunity and the ability to make really profound life-saving change, um, but they're doing it. Yeah. 
Well, thank you, Peter Ambler, for joining us today on Look West. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> we have to go pick up our daughter from uh, preschool here in a little bit. But oh, I almost forgot about that. <laughs> and thank you, everyone, for joining us today. This is Buffy Wicks, and I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm Andy Domic. And I'm Talitha Demessa. The Look West podcast is produced by the California Assembly Democrats. Please subscribe and rate this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And when you think of California and politics, remember to look west.